I remember the first time walking into Michael Kors's office and having to explain to him why I had a job, right? And of course, there was incredible leaders that believed in me and that hired me. And that really gave me, I mean, what a gift this was that gave me unlimited resources, ability, team, bandwidth. As long as the strategy was clear, they really let me go and dream big. And I think that was one of the greatest leadership lessons that I've ever had. Um, was the ability to watch people fly if you give them the right structures, tools, and belief. Welcome. This is Phil Michaels, Forbes 30 Under 30 Entrepreneur and Performance Coach. Forbes names the top 30 entrepreneurs, leaders, and stars in the world. And each week, we bring you one of them to help you level up in your life and business. From celebrities like LeBron James to Kylie Jenner and Cardi B, you're sure to learn from the list. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now it's time to level up. Level up. Welcome to the show. This is Phil Michaels with Forbes 30 Under 30 List Makers. If you don't already know, it's the world's only podcast that exclusively interviews those that have made the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, like LeBron James, Cardi B and entrepreneurs from around the world. Today, we have a very special guest. She made the Forbes USA list in 2014 for the marketing and advertising category. She was the head of global strategy for Michael Kors and even led the development of their very first Instagram ad ever. She also previously led social media at jetsetter.com and the Sweet Green restaurant chain. Currently, she's founded her own marketing agency called Farron Height where she helps companies tell stories, build brands, as well as identify and solve their market challenges. Whether it's a revamp of an existing identity or a more comprehensive growth plan, she'll help you create a brand that stands for something and stands apart. Please welcome my very special guest, Farron Wiener. What an introduction. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you. <laughs> I'm very it's excited nice to, be to here. have you here. My Thank pleasure. And, and it's, it's an honor for me. I love that I get to do this because I get to meet inspiring, admirable individuals like yourself that are changing the world or jet setting, if we will. I hope so. so. Thank you for joining us. Um, Before we dive into things, where were you when you found out you made the Forbes list? What do you remember about that moment? So I was, it's a great story, actually. I was in Mexico, which we were just talking about. I was in Mexico. I was in Tulum and I was actually at like an event. It was sort of like a music festival at the time in 2014. And the way that I found out was really interesting a girl that I am friends with who also won that year, her father is a Forbes subscriber. And I guess there was a cohort of people that got the magazine early who are sort of VIP members. And her dad called her freaking out. We had not been notified. We had no idea. And she saw my name on the list with her. Her name is uh, her name is Rachel Tipograph. She's incredible. She's the founder of Micmac. And Rachel called me and told me and then sent me this screenshot or, you know, a, an iPhone picture of it. And there was two other people on the list that were standing next to me at the party that didn't know. So it was wow. this really incredible <laughs> thing. And it would just so happen that they were in Mexico at the same time. We knew each other through the world of marketing. So not only did she get to call me with this great news, but then I got to break the great news to two incredible filmmakers who are with me and sort of have this wonderful celebration. What so, a great way to build rapport and connection too. I mean, you immediately have awesome. something in common right there. Yeah, it was really, it was really a special thing. And I think, you know, to be rewarded for your work is, is, I mean, it's very validating and it's wonderful. But I think the thing about Forbes that for me was the greatest, the sort of greatest impact and left the greatest impact was being a part of a community of people. A lot of the people that were in my class, if you will, of the Forbes year 2014, we've gone on to support each other in our careers since that time. And so it created a really great sense of camaraderie and again, validation that like we're doing something and we're doing something that's making a real impact. It is validating and it also helps you understand that, oh, I'm not the only crazy one that believes this is a good idea because sometimes you're a lonely founder and you're crushing it, but maybe it's only your mom supporting you at the very beginning or your friends and your family are wondering, well, how do I know this is legitimate? So it's a good stamp of approval to have. And then you're surrounded by other like-minded individuals that are all game-changing individuals. And I like to say a rising tide lifts all ships. Definitely. when you surround yourself with other people forcing you to level up. Yeah, you're level I think up. 
For sure. I think the Forbes list and winning it gave me like a free hall pass for all of my friends and family who like I hadn't answered their phone calls or texts for a year <laughs> and who like thought that like, you know, when I told them I was working, didn't get it. I think it was really more of like, a, oh, she's actually really out there hustling. <laughs> you know, she's really working her ass off, which I think was a gift in and of itself. For sure. And, and that's the Miami and New York in you. I know you're calling in from New York. So it's funny. We talked yeah. about Mexico. Tulum is actually the one place where everyone seems to be going because it's the one place that's open to Americans yeah. right now. Uh, before we dive into more of the nitty gritty and the granular aspects of your agency, take us back to the very beginning, Farron, where you're from, where you grew up and the path that ultimately led you to where you are now, making it to the Forbes list. So I grew up in Miami and I think from the very beginning was always a storyteller and as a child and in my earlier years, I explored so many different forms of, of creative, um, if you will, that I could to really express myself and tell stories. And it wasn't until my mid-20s where sort of the creative expression started to codify into a career or into a career path. I came to New York. I went to NYU. I studied film at Tisch School of the Arts. And then I actually went back to grad school where I studied new media in a global context. And it was really this moment of time where I was so curious about the globalization of storytelling, right? How not only were we able to tell a story globally through new forms of marketing and media, but how storytelling from around the world was also coming to us. This idea of two-way communication that interestingly enough was sort of like the very beginning connection that I had to social media, which in my mind was really the first two-way form, two form of communication. So I ended up really hustling, to be honest, through my NYU years. I took six years of unpaid internships, which I felt really grateful to have done, working for companies like National Geographic and MTV, really in any form of media from television to internet that I could. And through that journey, I ended up getting introduced to the team at Guilt Group in the early days, in the heyday of Guilt's development. Guilt was one of the first ever flash sale sites. And there was a travel platform sort of secretly being built called Jetsetter. I literally banged down the door. Like, I think I called the office a hundred times before finally getting an interview. And I went into the interview. It was a, you know, Jetsetter.com was the travel flash sale site. So I went in like dressed in this like aviation outfit, sat down and was like, I don't even know what jobs are available, but it is my job. And I think they hired me like within 24 hours because I just was so bullish that this was my job. And during the years at jetsetter.com, social media happened. Twitter launched early on in those years. Facebook opened its API to brands. Pinterest launched towards the end. Um, Instagram was sort of just be beginning. And all of a sudden, you didn't need a record label or a book deal in order to create and to share. You really had these new forms of media where you could share out. And that was the beginning of my transition from a creative to a marketer. Really thinking about not only is it important the stories we tell, but then how do we actually get those stories into the hands of consumers, into the audience that we are desiring it to be in front of. And I sort of was the really, at the end of the day, the person who grabbed the gold and as each one of these new forms of media started to be developed, said, let me try it. Let me be in charge of it. Let me learn. And I was obsessed. I mean, I lived 24 hours a day, seven days a week on Twitter in the beginning, just being so fascinated by having these conversations and the immediacy of the reaction. Talk about validation. Nothing was sort of more exhilarating, quite frankly, than like having real life conversations for the first time with people around the world who were like you. And that ultimately led me to really hone in on my skills as a marketer and a storyteller and ultimately go over to Michael Kors. Michael Kors um, is an incredible brand and business, and they were pre-IPO at the very beginning of a massive international expansion and had no social and really no digital footprint. And we're at that precipice of recognizing that these new channels were going to be critical to the growth of future brands. So they brought me in, they took a risk. Um, brought me in as the first ever director of social media, which at the time was a role that really didn't exist here in the U.S. and gave me free reign to create, to build, and to try. And because I think social media was just in its nascent stages of development, so that role didn't really exist in major companies. So, no. how did you handle having a new role with, where you create the direction kind of yourself? I mean, it was a constant fight not a fight. And I don't mean fight like I was fighting. It was like a battle. You know, I had to constantly prove and fight for these new channels that no one understood. 
you know, I remember the first time walking into Michael Kors's office and having to explain to him why I had a job. Right. And of course there was incredible leaders that believed in me and that hired me. And that really gave me, I mean, what a gift this was that gave me unlimited resources, ability, team bandwidth. As long as the strategy was clear, they really let me go and dream big. And I think that was one of the greatest leadership lessons that I've ever had. Um, was the ability to watch people fly if you give them the right structures, tools, and belief. You yeah, they really took a risk on you because you were setting this new blue ocean strategy that hadn't totally. been uh, back-tested yet. So you're just having free reign. They're like, totally. okay, just do what you want, but show us results. Because you have to force people to believe that, you, you know, this social media thing, we're on to something here. This is going to remain for a while. This isn't something that's just a fad that's going to go away. I remember if you look at early interviews from like the early 90s, people were talking about the internet as if it was just a fad. Oh, this whole internet thing, it's mm-hmm. going to go away in a year. Yeah. The internet, of course, can you imagine? So can with imagine? social media, I'm sure you were probably having to field those same responses like, oh, what's this whole social media role? Does she even deserve that position? Yeah. And I was really young, first of all, in my career. And I was going into this incredibly large historical organization and sort of telling people how to market. And at the end of the day, what was really interesting about that role is there was no one above me. There was no roadmap. There was no senior leadership. I had incredible leaders and marketers who helped me navigate questions and what to do. But I was the one driving the strategy, the execution, the results, the key learnings, and really putting a stake in the ground. There were many times at Michael, uh, there were many times at Michael Kors where my job was on the line, meaning I needed to take a bet on something. And the only sort of bet framework was my instinct. And I remember multiple times going in and sort of the CEO being like, all right, if it doesn't work, it's your job. (laughs) Like like if you really believe in this and you're going to come in here and fight for it, which I feel like I did every day, a great example of that was actually the first ever Instagram ad, which we launched with Instagram. Um, And we can kind of come back to that later, but that was a huge risk um, and one that ultimately paid off. To answer the question, it was such an incredible time to be in social. Those of us who were working in the category and in the industry, I think we felt like we were a little bit in the know. And we knew that we were onto something, like you could really feel it in the air. But I think that as we started to see the consumer behavior shift, right, we were ahead of the curve. And for certain brands like Michael Kors, and there is 20, you know, 20 to 30 other brands in the US and around the world that were investing early on in social, you could see it because we were ahead of the trend. We were ahead of where the customer was. You know, I remember the first ever Michael Kors Instagram post was me on an iPhone, like me by myself, posting on the on this random piece of technology that no one really understood as Michael just being like, sure, I'll post this picture of a flower. You know, by the time I left, there was 60 people globally working on social media and it is a massive ecosystem for the brand, for the business, and really for growth of the company. Um, when it came to the first ever Instagram ad, it actually came directly out of our brand strategy. And one of the big strategic frameworks for us was be first because Michael Kors was a celebrity. Michael was and is one of the most influential American fashion designers. He has a massive influence over both fashion and culture here in the U.S. And I knew that our social had to feel like a celebrity in and of itself. Our social had to be as heritage, as influential as Michael was in order for it to connect back to the brand. And so there was this, a bit of a competitive strategic framework of let's be first. When Instagram started testing and playing with the idea of doing paid ads. The handful of brands that were beta partners with them and that were in advertisers with them got word of it and got wind of it. And when I got on the phone with the team over at Instagram that we had built a really strong relationship with, I said, we have to be the first. And it's a really risky position to be in. Not one other brand had asked to be first. All the other leaders were fine being second, third, or fourth. But for us, I was like, we're either gonna get the credit of being first here of being the, you know, again, the celebrity of social media, or it's going to blow up in my face because we all know what it's like when platforms add ads to their platform and consumers have an uproar. So the 24 hours leading into the first ever ad was probably the most stressful, one of the most stressful experiences of my life, fully had my job on the line. Like either this was going to work or it wasn't going to work. And in the end, it really worked. You know, there was as much backlash as we thought from a consumer perspective, 
but I think we really tried to put out an ad that we could be proud of that customers could resonate with. And in the end, Michael Kors got credit for being the first ever Instagram ad. And I ended up on the Forbes list. So I think at the end of the day, what I, what I said earlier about taking risks, there was no roadmap. There was no data to say, is this a good or a bad idea? Really all there was, was understanding your brand, understanding your customer, having conviction in your strategy and just going with your gut. And you did it and you told stories along the way. And I think that's so important for anyone listening that has their own brand or a company that they work for that has a brand to tell it through a story. I always, I teach this in pitch competitions for those that are pitching their business. How could you say the same exact thing through one of your end users as if you're telling a story? So one of the ways for my ed tech company that we share what we do is, okay, picture Jasmine. She's a mother in a Nigerian slum and she doesn't have education for her child. Here's what's currently available to her. So you're sharing the problems through the lens of Jasmine, a mother in a Nigerian Mm -hmm. slum. Then I share how our company works and solves her problems through her story. And the whole idea is telling the hero's journey. If you know from Joseph Campbell's famous, the hero's journey framework, every story has a certain, you know, you meet the person that's going to take you into the outer world. You fight the problems, you overcome obstacles, challenges, then you find a solution and then you enter back into the normal world. It's like this yep. full loop cycle. And people realize, people are starting to realize that consumers want to be in touch with who's behind the brand. They know the company is now a group of people rather than back in the olden days. They just figured it was a logo with a name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talk a lot at Fahrenheit about being human. It's sort of, an internal cultural framework that sounds broad, but is actually really specific. And I can talk a bit more about that later. And we also talk about being human as it relates to our brands. You know, we're working with founders every day to help them build their brands. That's what we do. And it's an incredibly human, personal, emotional experience. There is so much about how we see ourselves wrapped up in how we build businesses. And I think that really being able to recognize like everyone is on a journey, whether it is a brand or a founder, I think has been an unlock for me in terms of my leadership. Good. Tell me about that framework. Like is what you've learned, knowing what you know now, what have you learned in terms of building a proper story that works when it comes to a brand? Do you have like your three go-to, like these are your musts and these are your absolute, like never do this. Yeah. Never try to be someone you're not and never try to copy somebody else. And I would say that if you're a brand or a business that is really just looking for commercial profitability and have no interest in building a really loyal consumer, really loyal consumer base, that's totally cool. We generally don't work with those brands. You know, I would say that's not my wheelhouse. My wheelhouse is brands and businesses that want to build a sustainable ecosystem for growth, that want to build an authentic, loyal following, and that are answering a lot of questions around why and really rooting what they do in creating a value chain for their audience and their consumer. When you're thinking about building your brand, the number one most important thing is to just know who you are. And part of why I think that building a brand is such a personal human experience is because it's very hard to know who you are as a business if you don't know who you are as a founder. For me, it took a long time for me to really get clear on and comfortable with who I am, with my personal non-negotiables, with the things that matter to me. And now a lot of things that were painful in my 20s as a leader are a gift now and something that comes naturally because I am more clear on who I am. And so we like to say that like finding the root of who your business is, why you exist, what matters to you and what you're creating out into the, in the world sounds sometimes like a lofty waste of time. I, you know, I think a lot of founders in the day-to-day of all the things that they have to do sometimes don't really want to spend the time going through the emotional journey of answering that question, but answering that question should actually unlock the ability for you to have an endless strategic framework. Because if you are clear on one to three things of who you are that never waver, the rest of it should really become easier to actually do. What you say yes to, what you say no to, where you invest your time, where you invest your energy, what roles you hire, what functions are important, you know, what partners you work with, all of those things are incredibly powerful if they're rooted in a powerful strategy. Otherwise, you and the rest of your team are just tetherless. So I think that's a long-winded way of sort of saying at the end of the day, the foundation of your brand and your business, getting clear on who you are, being radically yourself, not worrying about what other people are doing, and then 
having your non-negotiables is where to me, a successful brand really starts. Yeah. And sometimes that takes time to learn that as you experience new things as a founder. I remember starting out, I didn't know what my bread and butter was. So in those early nascent stages of developing yourself as a founder, you might try to be all things to all people. And then you end up becoming no things to no people. No one. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to be laser focused on identifying what is your core competency? What is your core passion? And sometimes that takes time. It takes obstacles. It takes tripping and falling before you find it out and mistakes. And then you are like, oh, okay, that didn't work. And you start being able to fire customers because in the beginning, you're trying to accept all revenue. And then you realize you set these boundaries. Like you said, you're non-negotiables and you realize, well, that's not my bread and butter customer. That's not my grade A quality customer. And you start narrowing it down in your marketing message, who you accept on your team, your values. I met with the founder of Priceline.com and he told me this story, amazing story about how he's coaching a guy who sells TV mounts to the hardware to mount your TV on a wall. And he said, there's three main messages they typically market that it's made of airplane grade steel, that it's easy to mount on your wall. And then it's easy to transfer if you have to move to a new location in your home or a new home. So he goes, all right, let's find out what is the number one reason that customers are buying your product. So they go to a store and they start asking anybody that picked up his off the shelf, they would immediately ask them, what was the number one reason you got that? What was the number one reason? And after they had enough data points, enough customers answering that question, they found that the most common answer was the airplane grade steel. So they asked everyone, why did they answer that way? And everyone that said the airplane grade steel said, I just invested about $1,000, $5,000 on this brand new TV. And so if this steel is enough to support an airplane, then it's enough to support my investment I just spent on this TV. So he said, okay, I want you to cut out all the fat, meaning remove all messages that has nothing to do with airplane grade steel. And I want everything to just say airplane grade steel. And don't quote me on the number, but it increased his sales by like 30 something percent. And so it became this- identification of what is my bread and butter? What is my absolute most important reason that my customers are coming to me rather than another TV mount? So for you, it might be, why do they come to your agency versus another agency? Because Fahrenheit and Farron's team does an amazing job at X, which maybe we can dive into in a little bit. But before we do, if you have something to add to that or comment on, but then how did you move from Michael Kors to your next venture? Yeah. So many things in there to react to. I think the first thing you sort of said that I just think is important is having a strategy is not binary and it could evolve and it could change. You know, in the course of my career, I've had lots of different strategic frameworks or non-negotiables that led me down one path. And then I run that path for a while until something doesn't feel right, or it's just time to make a change or there's a new opportunity. It doesn't mean you have to be locked into this system. And I think that what people often feel like is sometimes brand, especially brand strategy can be limiting. It actually can be freeing, right? If you know that your whole business is about airplane grade steel, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of creative ways to express that. Unlimited, limitless in terms of even that one singular idea. And I think that... Oftentimes, you know, I I actually watched something with Jay Shetty recently, and I really resonated this, which is we our entire lives, lives are conditioned to focus on our weaknesses. We are conditioned to focus on the things that we are not good at. And we are told that where we should invest our time is in developing those weaknesses. Imagine a world where instead we were from the beginning programmed to focus on our strengths and champion our strengths. And I think that Fahrenheit is a great example where I am flexing my strengths. The beauty of being an entrepreneur is you get to build a business around the things you love to do and the things that quite frankly, you're good at. So I really think that, you know, one on the point of what you said around understanding your strengths versus your weaknesses and really leaning into it. I think that's such an important point. One that for me has been a really big unlock and something that's influenced me a lot. So Going back now to what you said, was at Michael Kors for a little over three years, was probably one of the most remarkable experiences for me. And I was able to replicate what we did here in the US in all of our markets worldwide. So launching the first ever social media in China, in Brazil, in Japan, 
in Dubai, in Europe, really replicating sort of like, how do we take this global ap- approach and view of the Michael Kors brand and leverage these new forms of technology and media to help tell that story. And really at that time, I knew that I wanted to go to a socially native, digitally native company that had an, imp- you know, that was on a mission to make an impact. And I ended up going to Sweetgreen. I went over to Sweetgreen during the early days. I went over to Sweetgreen during the early days of growth, really to help them put the brand on the national stage. Sweetgreen was seven years into the business. They already had a cult-like following. They were already really, really strong in terms of understanding how brand impacts consumer mindset. And I honestly feel like I had the luxury of being able to go in as the first ever marketing um, head of marketing, really there to drive growth and to put Sweetgreen on the stage as the leader in healthy, fast, casual. Um, I was able to oversee in my time at Sweetgreen, brand, marketing, and creative all under one roof. And it was such a great journey for me, but I started to really recognize towards the end of my tenure there that I had an entrepreneurial itch that I had been scratching the surface of while at these organizations, always in a fast-paced, high-growth organization, always leading teams and leading sort of the newness But there was something that I had yet to uncover. And that's ultimately what led me on this journey to starting Fahrenheit. So uh, that sort of brings us to today. After years of working with founders, after years of listening to the woes of brand building at every size from, you know, your first seed round investment all the way to a $4 billion market cap, I had really seen the experience and the journey of founders I understand the unique challenges they face when it comes to building brands. And Fahrenheit was really born um, as a desire to help founders build strong brands that they themselves can continue to build sustainably over time. That's us. I love it. And I love the name too. I mean, thank you. Perfect. It's brilliant. I bought the URL in high school. And just was waiting for the right (laughs) time to use it, you know? And you also have like the jet setter Farron for the Instagram handle, right? So you're kind of incorporating all of your skill sets and experiences into your brand now. Well, it's really funny because people think I named myself Jet Set Farron. It's like a joke. But the truth is the CEO of Jet Setter actually named all of us Jet Set. So when Twitter first launched, every person at the company got on Twitter for the first time ever, and we all named ourselves Jet Set. So there was many Jet Sets out there. I just happened to be the one that stuck with it and kept it. And so it is both an ode to Jet Setter, and it's actually also an ode to Michael Kors because our strategy at Michael Kors was Jet Set Luxury. So there's a little bit of me in all of my brands and sort of little breadcrumbs that I leave, um, you know, in the brands that I've had really the gift and the luxury to build. And that speaks to your strengths. I mean, echoing what you learned from Jay Shetty, I teach my clients that all the time. Stop trying to waste energy mitigating your weaknesses and double down on your strengths. Once you know what your strengths are, you can hire team members to join you that complement your weaknesses. So instead of trying to mitigate them, you just find people that those weaknesses are actually their strengths. Yeah, there was actually in a really honest and vulnerable sort of anecdote to this. There was a period of time where I was told in a few different scenarios that I couldn't be a founder because I am a creative marketer. And I would actually say I'm, I'm a pretty strong hybrid of marketer, brand, and creative. And I think my superpower is being able to really walk the line between all three and be dangerous enough in all three that I actually can be the conduit for connection between those groups. I'm not a finance person, right? I never went to business school. In fact, I didn't go to marketing school either. I'm completely self-taught. And I've, in maybe three years ago, when I was really out first figuring out what I wanted to build and what I wanted to create, there was a couple of moments where I was told that because I don't have a finance background, I couldn't be a founder and I needed a co-founder. And actually, if I'm being really transparent, I was told I needed a male co-founder who was an an expert in finance. And here I am today, completely self-funded, a year and a half in, profitable within the first three months. We have 15 full-time members of Fahrenheit and we've broken all of our goals. This year we grew about 150% since last year. Um, And I manage the finances just fine. So I think the reality is, is, you know, starting things on your own is a lot of it's having the confidence. And I do think that when I stop worrying about the things I'm not good at, 
And I just stopped having anxiety about it. I stopped putting that pressure on myself. I started focusing on the things that I was good at or that I love to do. A lot of the other stuff came. And like, listen, God bless my accountant, Sean, who knows is basically my brother, who I talk to 400 times a day. But most of the time he says to me, you have common sense. You understand your business. You can look at things strategically and clearly. Whoever told you you couldn't do this was really focused on the wrong things. And so I'm actually telling that story not to brag. I'm telling it because it's something that I hope resonates with some people who are out there listening right now that I never in a million years thought that I could do these things. And I let people tell me I couldn't. And now, quite frankly, my finances are the least of my worries at Fahrenheit. And the thing I probably have the biggest handle on as a founder now. I love that. And that's a story of perseverance and having the conviction to share things with communication that was unwavering and you believed in yourself. And sometimes that's all it takes. That was one of the biggest mistakes I made when starting my company was taking advice from too many people. And I was like too coachable to the point where it was hurting me and I wasn't listening to myself. I wasn't listening to my gut instincts. And sometimes that just takes time to build and weather the storm before you become confident in, in your speech, your thoughts, your gut instinct. So you can totally. say it with conviction. And what advice would you give someone that's just starting out that's going through that now? A great leader of mine, one of the best mentors I've ever had once said to me in a really challenging moment of feedback, said, you know, you look at feedback the wrong way. You should look at feedback as ammunition because it is ammunition for you to be better, faster, and stronger. And without negative feedback, you actually won't grow. And I got to a point where I took that advice so literally that I used to walk into like a year-end review or a feedback meeting and be like, game on. Like, I'm so ready. I actually visualize it in my brain, like a little bit, not to be dramatic, but a little bit like a weapon, Without that feedback, I'm weaponless. With that feedback, I have the power to choose where to grow, where to learn, where to evolve, where to hire, where to hire someone else to do the job, you know? So I think for anyone out there, first, what I would say is look at the, look at the feedback or the challenges as the opportunity to grow. And it doesn't mean you need to be all-knowing or all-being. It just means it gives you the more, more power to know where to invest time, people, resources, or growth. The second thing is do not take no for an answer. You know, for me, internal fortitude has been probably the number one, one, number one best personal sort of skill set that has gotten me to where I am today. At the end of the day, everyone is just a person with their own perception and projection. You know, you hear the sort of incredible stories about founders of billion dollar companies, unicorn startups who went to a hundred investors before one said yes. People make bets, people have instinct, people think they know, but the truth is you're the only one that knows. And you should really, at the end of the day, take feedback or advice, like you said, as a filter, not the be all end all. For me, I like to look at things now from a place of, oh, that's interesting. Like when someone tells me, Something will work. Something won't work. They love my business. They hate my business. Whatever the case is, I look at it with a sense of curiosity more than the end all be all. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you. And I'll mull on it. But then I also kind of shed what doesn't serve me because to your point, being impressionable actually as a leader or a founder, I think is the worst place you could be. Being overly convicted, you know, look at some of the best leaders, right, of our time, Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, they might not be everything, but they are convicted in their beliefs and they are convicted in their vision come hell or high water, you know, sort of like the captain will go down with the ship mentality. Yeah. When everyone told, I remember if you've read Elon Musk's biography, he talks about how he went to NASA and his idea was to create this relaunchable rocket. And he had the smartest engineers in the world working at NASA telling him that is physically impossible. These are physicists telling him it's impossible from a scientific standpoint. And he's like, can you imagine looking up to these people? These are the people that you grew up admiring. These were your role models. And they're telling you what you know is possible. They're telling you it's impossible. Impossible, yeah. And not only did he do it, he did it for like a quarter of the budget that NASA had. And I just, I love people like that that just completely disrupt the status quo and don't take no for an answer. Because like you said, it, it only takes one yes. Out of yeah, all and those it, no's. And, and failing like a hundred times. You know, part of how Fahrenheit actually started was that I 
in some capacity failed and failure is very subjective, which is a whole other topic of conversation. But I somewhat, my worst nightmare came true, which was I didn't succeed at something. And the minute that I didn't succeed at something, I woke up the next morning. I was like, okay, I survived. I'm okay. I'm alive, you know, still here, you know? And once I shed that fear, I was able to actually create a bit more fearlessly, fearlessly, fearlessnessly. I was able to create from a fearless place and that helped me to succeed. And I think what I've recognized is failure is awesome. Screwing up on something really gives you the opportunity to iterate and to change. And so I think tech companies are famously, you know, known for shipping product, right? They ship out product, they ship out updates, they try and A-B test things they throw things against the wall and they see what sticks. Whereas more of the consumer brands, where the world I come from, everything has to be perfect before it goes live. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. And so the ability to fail, I think, is a great asset and something that shouldn't honestly be looked at in such a negative way as it is. For me, that was a really big, that was a really big shift. You had a lot of grit, perseverance, and resilience to bounce back. And What's amazing about after you have your worst fear come true, after you survive that, everything is possible. Oh it yeah, you're like very powerful. You're very yeah. powerful after that. Very and powerful, that, please. You know, one of the things I always share is your pain is your greatest gift because where those pains are, are ultimately what are going to help you serve others and impact others in a positive way. And I love the quote about success is just moving from one failure to the next without losing enthusiasm. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) And I mean, for me, what gives me enthusiasm is my team. I'm obsessed with my team. Um, They're definitely what makes me wake up every morning. And I consider part of my team, the founders that we have the honor to work with. And feeling really like we're all driving towards the same goal or the same mission and doing it in a more human way, doing it with a lot more compassion, camaraderie, heart, and understanding, as I think a lot of cultures have been created in the past, for me has just really changed my perspective on what it means to be a leader. And so mm. I totally agree with you. I think you have to know why you're doing what you're doing. Because if you know why you're doing what you're doing, you know what makes you tick. All of a sudden, those failures just become moments versus the end, quite frankly. How did you find the right team for you? Ah. Because you were a jet setter already. You already knew exactly what to do. So you had your cherry picking abilities from a lot of huge companies and amazing people. Thank you. More than a storyteller, I think I'm a team builder. You know, I think like in a, for me, the more senior and experience you get in your career, the more your job is teaching, directing, leading, coaching. And I definitely think I'm an, I talk about this a lot. I'm an older sister. So I think my leadership style is like this older sister mentality. I expect a lot. I expect you to sort of represent the family in the right way and show up, but I will be the first person there with you at three in the morning, getting that paper ready for your class the next day or teaching you how to drive for the first time. So like the expectation is really high in terms of the level of accountability, respect, dedication, passion commitment, but the level of teaching, the level of partnership, the level of support, like there is literally no task that is too granular for me as a leader. And there is no meeting that is too late. I will show up for my team whenever they need it, as long as the mindset is there. And so for me at Fahrenheit, there's definitely a really specific type of person that works here. Um, I've been able to meet such incredible people working in my almost 15 years of being in marketing in New York and in, and in LA and in Chicago and all over this country. So when I really set out to build Fahrenheit, first I, at the end of the day, you know, like most of us launched me and one other person on the team and slowly over the last year and a half, we've grown to 15 people. I think it's really a combination of looking for talent, but for me, what I've le- learned of what works best for me when building the right team is I actually look for a few other things first. I look for potential more than anything. I look for the right level of values and I look for the right level of connection in terms of work ethic and work styles. We're definitely a passionate bunch at Fahrenheit. We're definitely, you know, we're passionate, we're engaged, we're excited. We have a lot of conversations at Fahrenheit about what it means to care 
like really care about the work you're doing, like waking up in the middle of the night to write something down kind of care. And that's not for everyone. This level of pace and intensity that we have at Fahrenheit is definitely not for everyone. So I think we tend to attract the certain type of, of individual individual that works here. But for me, I think the skills and marketing change so rapidly. God bless you. The skills and marketing change so rapidly that when I was younger in my career, I used to hire for skill. Now I hire for strengths and I hire for potential and I hire very much for values. I love that. One of the best books I read that was recommended to me by a mentor is called The Who by Jeff Smart. Jeff spelled with a G-E-O-F-F. It's changed my entire hiring process since 2017. It's a game changer. And I love, he walks you through like every single interview question, what you should say and not say. And so it's very applicable to the real world. And I still use that interview script help uh, today. I feel like I know it when I see it. You know, and actually what's been really interesting is like, I've met people in the past and three years later I'm hiring for a job and I'm like, I'm going to hire that person. And I actually can't tell you, I think my time at Sweetgreen was a great example where a large portion of that team was people in my mind that I knew Mm. that I had met for one second, like one second in a moment. And I proactively went on LinkedIn, emailed them, said, Hey, I have a job for you. Come meet me. You seem really intuitive. Like you're really good at reading people's energy and character. I think that's part of being a marketer right, is marketer, marketers are trying to tap into an emotional connection with a consumer. We're really trying to understand the psychology of what makes people tick, what makes them care, what makes them feel supported. And so I think with that, there's a bit of psychology that you have to be able to do. And I think it's made me hopefully more self-aware in myself and more self-aware and more aware of others around me um, in not just my work, but in my life. So thinking about your success, Farron, what do you think is the single most important attribute that got you to where you are today? I know you mentioned mental fortitude. Is yeah. there anything else? Yeah, I think internal fortitude would probably be one of them. But since I already gave that one, I'll give the second passion. I had a moment where I was going to become um, the founder of a company in the CPG space I worked on it for about nine months and I woke up one morning and just said, does this really make me tick? And for me, being deeply passionate about what I was doing, I recognize is a non-negotiable. Understanding what you're passionate about is actually in and of itself a whole big world. You could be passionate about making money. Like that's awesome. You could be passionate about teaching. You could be passionate about making an impact on the world around you. You could be passionate about being an entrepreneur and building everything by yourself. You know, there's lots of ways to look at the word passion that I think sometimes gets underplayed. But for me, I recognize that the most impactful moments of my career in my life were when I was deeply passionate about what I was doing. And when I focus on doing something that one, I'm passionate about where I can really be successful, the success and the other stuff actually comes spiritual, financial, personal, professional, all of that stuff comes versus the inverse when I'm really focused on, I want to be financially successful, like as the output, then sometimes I find myself in a position where I'm misaligned. So being convicted and having internal fortitude, you will get knocked down a million times. It will be tough. The entrepreneur's path is not an easy one. And I think at the end of the day, um, knowing and just being aware of the punches you're going to get And being ready for them and shifting from being afraid of them, but being more like, I am ready for this. I'm actually excited for this because by the way, the minute I get punched is the minute that I actually get to learn and then go up again. And you get to add that tool to your toolbox, which makes you more well-equipped for the next experience you're going to have to overcome. Exactly. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, obviously at Fahrenheit, we work with early stage founders, helping them to build their brands. Often we're coming in, in some capacity, like a marketing team for rent, where they're really working with me directly as sort of an interim CMO or chief brand officer, helping to navigate all of the questions of what does it mean to build my brand? And then as it relates to getting things done, which we know in startup world is paramount, the Fahrenheit team, which we call the SWAT team, is literally jumping in function by function and actually getting stuff done. And one of the things that I really learned, you know, is at the end of the day, providing that support for these founders is so important and so amazing because they're facing things often for the first time that I'm laughing about now. And I think that that's not to take it lightly, but it's to say, I've 
you know, for every bad story a founder calls me and talks to me about, I'll tell them three of the bad ones I've faced. And I think just that recognition, and that's, a, that goes back to what we talk about of being human, right? I'm not, I'm never afraid to have the real converse with a conversation with a founder or, or a client and say, Hey, you think that was bad? Let me tell you what I did when I was in your shoes. Let me tell you where I messed up. You know, I'm very famous for telling all of my horror stories at work. And the reason that I tell them is because I want people to not be afraid, to not be afraid to fail because back to passion, better to fail than to have never tried. And, and you I can think empathize that is, with them. You can empathize absolutely. with them. So they respect you more. You, you now have more rapport and credibility for when you do handhold them in the beginning stages, which is important for a founder. They don't know Definitely. the answers and they want someone to kind of handhold them in the beginning and then set up systems with a strategic plan. So it could kind of run on its own. And it sounds like you and your team do that. And I, I love the idea of passion. You cannot coach passion. I wish people spent more time trying to identify their passion rather than just going you know, right into something. And yeah. I read this book flow. It's probably the book I recommend more often than any other book by Dr. Mihai Chesan Mihai, this Hungarian psychologist who talks about flow state, which is mm -hmm. simply the intersection of your greatest passion and your greatest competency. And at that intersection is your purpose. Definitely. Instead of following your passion, follow your purpose. So we had a, um, yeah. we ahead. had a really interesting, so this past year we launched the Fahrenheit podcast and the Fahrenheit podcast is really sort of an audio destination at the intersection of life and work. We really tackle how to interchangeably build your brand, your team and your life and sort of the ideas, if you will, that bind us and the relationship and the connect point that we face on all of those things. For me, as I've built brands over the years, what I've recognized is that the same frameworks I take to building brands, I've actually taken sort of subconsciously to building my own life. What is my mission? What is my vision for my future? What are the values that I live by? You know, all of those questions are sort of things you end up looking for. You know, you, you use those questions when you're looking for a partner, right? Or the next job. So we really discuss sort of these theories and these ideas on the Fahrenheit podcast. We're in the first season. And last week, we ended up having this thing. Actually, it's next week's podcast. We ended up talking about strategy and brand strategy and business strategy and actually the distinction between Business strategy and brand strategy are one thing, but when it comes to you as a person, it's more about purpose. And so I love what you just said. And we actually talk all about flow state and finding your purpose is really as simple as sitting down and saying like, when did I feel most in my flow? When did I feel aligned? When did I feel happy? When was I in a flow? And how, what key learnings can I pull from that to help me think through like what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. So, and then looking for patterns and trends amongst them to see if there's exactly. any commonalities here that was starting exactly. to rise up to the occasion. There you go. Yeah. Baron, thinking on the flip side, we talked about your success and your single most important attribute that got you to where you are today. What has been your biggest lesson you learned during your journey that you wish you had learned from sooner? I wish I had learned sooner that everyone is a beginner at everything for the first time that at some point you are always doing something you have never done before. Whether you are the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company or sitting alone in your apartment with a back of a napkin idea, at every step of the way, every single day, we are gonna face challenges that we've never crossed before. And at some point you get really good at them and they're not new anymore and you can teach and you can help others. Um, and actually helping others has become a very fulfilling thing for me with work. I actually realized in part to what wakes me up in the morning and how I was saying how excited I am about my team. I learned that that's part of my flow. Teaching and being able to make an impact for me is a critical need, a non-negotiable. But I think for me, what I learned was at every given moment, we're all doing something for the first time. I just got off the phone working on a project. We're doing something for a founder I've never done before. And I'm like, I got to figure this out. You know, just like I figured out Instagram in, you know, 2011 or 14 or whatever year it was, who knows, 2011, 2011. So I think at the end of the day, I wish the younger me knew, knew that and had the confidence to know it was okay. And now I think older years, more convicted, more experienced. I'm the first to say I've never done that before. I have no idea how to do that, but I'll go figure it out. And that's a, that is something that I wish my, my younger self knew. That's part of the scrappy hustle that you need to have as a entrepreneur, as a founder. So thinking of scrappy hustles, what's yeah. something you did that was scrappy that maybe you couldn't have revealed when you were first starting out in your career, but you're willing to share now? Yeah. I mean, definitely the scrappiest I've been is Fahrenheit. 
and I might, you know, my team will probably kill me for saying this, but like I hired my first employee on the spot. Literally, she started working 20 minutes later. And I think I like paid her in cash for the first few months because I had no LLC. I had no idea how to do anything. Like I had literally didn't even know I was starting a business. I had a bunch of clients that I had just started working with as a bit of a hypothesis. And all of a sudden, one day I woke up and was like, game on, there's something here. Like there's definitely a market fit. People want what we have. People want what we're selling and let's go. And for the first six months of the business, everything was like a patchwork. And so I think the, the you know, the idea I started Fahrenheit with $2,000 investment that I put into a Chase bank account because that's what you needed to open the bank account. And that was it. We started building from there. So one of the scrappiest things I've ever did was pay employees in cash. I'm probably going to get killed for saying this on, you know, TV. It's all been solved IRS, but I do think that you got to do what you got to do and not have, and not be afraid to figure it out. Now Fahrenheit is a registered business in three States. We have employees working all over the world. I'm so proud of all of that. But like, again, that was the first time for everything. Now, if I have to open up a new state, form an LLC, I could do it with my eyes closed, but it took me the time to learn to do all of that myself and figure it out. It reminds me of the quote of entrepreneurship is just jumping out of a plane and figuring out how to fly on the, on the way down. <laughs> yeah. And listen, I love skydiving. So I think for me, that's part of what, Oh, me too. I just, that's uh, part of what makes it, makes it right. Have you, I don't know if you've done this before, but I, I went skydiving in Dubai over the Palm. Cool. It's That's the awesome. most badass picture ever from skydiving. You have to do it. I did it. my first one in South Africa, which was pretty amazing. Beautiful. So Dubai sounds gorgeous. like a good, good, good place. All right. We're going to transition into the final segment of the episode, which is called the under 30 seconds round. I'm going to fire right, off ready. some questions and just answer with the first one that comes to mind. Ready. What is the book you've gifted more often than any other book and why? How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen, who's a Harvard professor, because really he was the first person that ever started me thinking on this question of how can I be happy in my career? How can I be both happy and successful at the same time? And I've given that book to hundreds of people and it left a massive impact on my life and a lot of what we talk about on the Fahrenheit podcast. He's a great one. Rest in peace. I spoke on a panel with him a couple of years ago, actually. He's an amazing individual. I had the unbelievable gift of talking to him on the phone as a massive fan. Like I'm literally a fan girl. A friend of mine as a birthday gift got me a phone call with him about a few years ago now. And I just feel very, very blessed to have been able to be influenced him, influenced by him even just the smallest bit. I found his book, How Will You Measure Your Life, to be like an actual mind-blowing thing mm-hmm. for me. So if you're out there as a founder or an entrepreneur anybody listening who's really looking to strike this balance of like passion and purpose of business and your life of being happy and successful. I highly, 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 highly recommend this book. There you go. Two, what's one of the best investments and one of the worst investments you've ever made and why? Best investment was in myself. Worst investment was in things I thought I should invest in. What's the most impactful thing you do in your morning routine and the most impactful thing you do in your evening routine? The most impactful thing I do in the morning is breathe, which sounds simple, yet is both challenging and effective. The most impactful thing that I do in my evening routine is take a bath if I have one, which I haven't had one for a few weeks. But when I do, I really try to take a bath. It's a bit of like a forced calm where there's a break in the day for me, which I really need. I'm, I'm known to do conference calls sometimes from there too. (laughs) I I mean, I I love the breathing one. I always tell people what morning routine item can you go the longest without? Because a lot of people have food, they have water, they have breath work, food, you can go the longest water. You can go to the second longest breathing. If you don't breathe, you, you pretty much can die pretty quickly. So it's so important to get the breath work in as soon as possible. Yeah. And I think for, for a lot of us, the day, the minute that that day starts, we're like off to the races in fast paced, high growth companies. So just using the morning to try to say, all right, take it in, take a deep breath, try to get centered. Cause of who knows where this day is about to take us has been a really important skill for me to hone in. You'll on. like this. I learned this from a neuroscientist. I do a 
10 cat cows, like the yoga pose mm -hmm. while I'm doing the breath work. And apparently what it does is it immediately sends the cerebral spinal fluid through the spine to your brain. So your neurons are firing quicker oh, wow. than if you don't do that. So if you pair that with your breath work, which is what I do, it, it cool. lights you up. In the Good first to know. Thing of the day. I'll try that. Second to last one, pretend you won the Peter Thiel fellowship and you're going to get money to start a business rather than go to college. What's the very first thing you do to start your new business? I would ask why. I would spend a lot of time understanding why. And then I would look for a problem rooted in that why. Beautiful. Last one. What's something you never knew you needed? I never knew I needed an infrared sauna, which sounds like a really strange one, but has been an ultimate life hack for me. Um, I started going to infrared saunas here in New York. They're all over the place. I now have, because of COVID, I invested in a blanket, which you can find on Amazon. I'm not paid for this at all. This is totally my passion, but it has been like a game change, a, really a game changer for me, actually, in terms of productivity. A couple times a week, I get in, I get a really good sweat in. Um, it's really become this sort of like moment of me time for me and helps just, just really clear my space, my air. And so I think what that actually speaks to in terms of like, what did I not know that I needed? I never really knew I needed rituals. And now that I know that I need them, I figured out a couple that really, really work for me um, in this busy, fast-paced work from home life that we're living. They've become more important than ever. So the staples are the bath, the infrared sauna, and is it like a gravity blanket? Like and breathing. Heavy By the way, that's all that I do. Just putting it out there. You now know the entire extent of everything, <laughs> my full self-care routine and everything nice I do for myself. And other than that, I basically work. So now you know all that you need to know about me. But yeah, it's, um, it's a heated blanket. So it's like a heated blanket that you go inside. Infrared is, has a lot of benefits. Um, even if you don't believe all of them, it feels pretty great. And I feel like it clears my brain, it clears my air, it clears mm. my, my, you know, body. So it just become a really good ritual for me. There's always that point in the week where I'm like, okay, I'm ready for it. For Those it. are great tips. Yep. Baron, thank you so much for being here today. Before you go, what's next for you? What's the next big goal, milestone, or bucket list item you want to achieve? For us at Fahrenheit, one of our missions is to democratize great branding. This idea that a great brand starts authentically in who you are. A lot of it is not about giving founders services really that they need to pay for. It's actually about helping them unlock it within themselves, helping them find their truth and their North Star and giving them tools, frameworks, and guidance and teaching on mm -hmm. how they can actually lead it themselves. So we always say we want to leave founders better than we found them. And I think for us at Fahrenheit, like year two is all about building strong brands and really productizing what we do in a way where we can offer it to more people to help really make a larger impact on founders that are out there who are struggling. Uh, we're also really looking forward to season two of the Fahrenheit podcast, which we're starting to develop now. So I think for us, it's how do we just build great brands? Because at the end of the day, brands connect us. They make us more human. They make us find our tribes and our community. And hopefully we get to be a part of that. I love that. What, by the way, what is the brand that you really look up to now? What's one that you really admire? Like, wow, they're really crushing it. My friend Musa, my friend Musa has really gotten me obsessed with a brand called Liquid Death. Liquid Death is a he is also a previous Forbes winner. Um, but Musa got me obsessed with Liquid Death. It is a canned water beverage that the name sounds like the brand. And I think in this world of really like over commodified brands, a lot of what has been deemed premium mediocre design, which is brand design that looks and feels all of the same and is really highly commoditized. Liquid Death is such a good example of individuality. They really put out into the world such a strong, clear identity of who they are and what they stand for. And it's not for everyone, but for the people that it is for. They have created a cult. And that is really what every brand wants, right? And what's ironic is often what keeps people from building a cult is simply being themselves, having the confidence, the belief, and the, quite frankly, discipline to really just go out there and be who you are. So a, liquid death is a, is a good one that my friend has really put into my brain that I've been really loving. It's better to have a hundred raving fans that absolutely love you and are obsessed with you than uh, 10,000 people that just kind of totally. Like you. It totally reminds me agree. of the company vice cream when everyone was building ice cream. That's like vegan, almond milk, dairy free. They were like, no, if you're going to eat ice cream, it's got to be real. So it's like full fat, full yep. dairy, exactly. full regular sugar. I love that zigzag principle.
Yep. A hundred percent. So Fair, and where do listeners go to connect with you directly? Yeah. So you can find us on Instagram at Fahrenheit, F as in Frank, A-R-R-Y-N-H-E-I-G-H-T. You can also find me at Jets at Farron if you want to tell me your thoughts or chat or DM. And you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google, all the places you find pod, all of the places you find podcasts at the Fahrenheit podcast. I love it. Great. Please go connect with Farron and her team. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here today. This is Farron Wiener with Fahrenheit who creates and revamps brands. We learned so much today, how to develop your passion, how the very first Instagram ad was created and how to hire the right people. Farron, thank you so much again for being here. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Phil. You too. I hope this episode helped you as much as it helped me. Have an amazing day. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today. I hope this episode helped you as much as it helped me. Who do you think would benefit from hearing it? You can make an impact on their life by sharing it now. Before you go, I encourage you to tell us your favorite part of the episode in the review section. Now it's time to level up. Level up. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.